0: The following is a production of Colleen Callahan Consultancy and C3 Studios. Today's episode is brought to you by Rooster, an innovative agriculture and rural lifestyle marketing company that solves client problems before they become problems. Learn more at roosterstrategy.com. This is the Rural Reveal. A collection of compelling stories of those who live and work in rural communities, and those who have influenced the fate or future of rural America. Across the country, there are real-life situations, experiences, and complications affecting real people. I'm Kelsey Litchfield, and today you'll meet Carrie Pretell, a wife, a mother, an author, and a farmer from Missouri. In 2010, she was busy with work and life on the farm, transitioning from being a full-time photographer to being back in the healthcare field. She was keeping up with four kids and living life at a very fast pace.
1: I remember so many times saying, Carrie, you have got to find a way to slow down. And I felt like I, I was having all of these moments that I should have been treasuring, like just stopping in that moment and absorbing it and just being grateful. And I only allowed myself to feel it for just a small second because I had to move on to that next step. So it just, I just remember it being so busy that I wanted to stop for a little bit, but I just could not figure out how to do it. I just, I couldn't, I was having terrible problems with it. And, you know, I I
0: say now I joke around, I'm like, be careful what you wish for. December 29th, 2010 was a cold Wednesday evening where Carrie and her two daughters were traveling to Zumba class. About eight minutes into their trip, their lives were changed forever.
1: 912
0: Ambulance A mid-Missouri woman was
1: seriously injured when a drunk driver hit her car head-on.
0: A total of four vehicles were in the accident. The impaired driver died at the scene. Carrie suffered serious injuries. Her pelvis, lower legs, and ankles were crushed. Her daughter suffered moderate injuries. If you do a Google search of Carrie Portel car accident and click on images, you will find pictures of their car. Carrie points out three things that saved them that evening. Wearing seatbelts, having three airbags per seat, that absorbed the impact and shock of the crash and God's protection. Carrie's road to recovery is still ongoing almost 12 years later. That next year, the
1: entire year of 2011 was definitely, I can say, the worst year of my entire life. And it's it was worse than anything I could have consciously imagined because it was the pain never stopped and it was not just pain that made you hurt. It was debilitating. And I feel like I, I mean, you needed a dilated drip just like you were in the hospital, but they can't send you home with that. So they just plugged these narcotics in me. Um, I mean, my, my husband had to make actually like an Excel spreadsheet with the amount of medicine to give me. And at what times, because it was, I feel like it was every two hours I was taking some sort of medicine. And so I couldn't be left alone for a long time. And um, for the people who were coming to watch me, they had to have some kind of guidance, you know, to give me medicine. But it was, my recovery was four years total. But that first year, my life changed again. Like it changed that night on the highway. And that next year was the year that I learned the most about myself. I learned the most lessons in life um, and my faith, not just in God, but in myself grew to an unbelievable magnitude. And it's like, my throat is closing up right now (laughs) because it was the most horrible time of my life, but it was also the most growth that I have ever had. And boy, do I wish I could have gotten to this place in a different way. But because those lessons and that pain were so hard, like everything that I've learned has stuck with me. So it's like every day I'm so friggin' grateful. It's unbelievable. Like if I told people every day how grateful I was, they'd be like, Carrie, shut up because I am tired of hearing how grateful you are, <laughs> you know, but that's how I feel. And I think that comes from, I mean, Nearly losing your life because in in that very last moment before we had the impact, I was pretty certain that I was not going to make it. And I remember begging God, I'm like, "It's okay, just just take me, please save those girls. I, I can deal with me." And you know, I don't want to say that he did that for me, but the points of impact where that truck hit me was the driver's side the driver's seat, um, because the head-on collision was on the driver's side, and then it turned him um, to have that second impact into the side of my door, so I took the brunt of it, and as a mom, that is the only way that I would have wanted it, so it's, um, that first year was hard on my entire family. I, I mean, I know a lot of people talk about me, but my family had to be there with me, and they had to know that I was in pain, you know, they could hear me breathing hard and I didn't even know I was doing it. It's just how you breathe when you hurt that bad. And then, gosh, I don't even know how many surgeries I had that first year. Um, my surgeries were very extensive. So it took a long time to recover from each one. I feel like I had four that year. Uh, but it was, it was long recoveries in between. So every time I would finally get like a cast off or they'd say, okay, you can start moving. It felt like, bam, I was right back in the in the or again having another surgery but um so many stories (laughs) from that first year and um my book is the is just the first year because i feel like that was that was such an essential part of my recovery it's the only part that one i could get through but two that it it was just the most detrimental to my story
0: how did you not give up on the recovery, even though you were in so much pain? That
1: that first year I had, um, not that I was going to give up, but I, I spent a lot of time in a hospital bed in my living room uh, that first year. And I remember asking myself the question all the time, you know, when am I going to be okay? And I didn't really even know what that meant. I didn't know if that meant physically or emotionally, because I felt like my heart was just as much in pain as my body was. And the second question was, we didn't really know how well I was going to walk or if my legs were going to hold me anymore, but I had to wait so long for my injuries to heal, to even be able to try to stand up. And the first time that I did, I remember my physical therapist saying, the only reason you're standing up is because there's metal in your legs, like your metal is holding you and this is not going to work. But that other question was, you know, is is this going to be worth it? Is me trying to walk and go through all of these reconstructive surgeries really going to be worth all of this pain? And I just, at at that point, like to be able to describe the pain, the only way that I can think about it is at at that point, it it hurt just to exist in this world. I just wanted to get from that existing point to say, man, I feel like I'm surviving now. I just wanted to survive. Like I couldn't even get there. But what it was, there was really, the main point was my children. So when they would come in off the bus and they would come screaming through the kitchen door, you can imagine with four kids that are in a very short age range that just utter chaos followed them. And I had spent so much of my day in despair that that chaos was the highlight of my day. It was just so enjoyable for me. And I, I always end up going back to the mom thing and what really made me say, "Care, you've got to keep fighting in whatever way possible, whether it's physically or whether it's just to get yourself back to where you were emotionally and mentally was, I was so afraid that if my kids saw mom give up, that at some point in their future, that would give them permission to give up. And I, I could not be that excuse. Like no way was I ever going to hear well, mom, you gave up. Why can't I? Uh uh. I I just couldn't do it. And that is what kept spurring me on. And it wasn't so much of, um, it kind of changed whenever that happened for me, not to, I have to be able to walk. It was more. So even if I end up in a wheelchair, I want to be the best mom that I can for them. I want them to have the mom that they're supposed to have. And if that means being in a wheelchair, instead of you know, doing this journey to walk again, that's what I want. And then the other two things that really, really helped me find peace was that one acceptance, because this happened. Mm -hmm. It's not like you can wish it away. It happened. I've just got to figure out how to go forward. And my second was forgiveness. And I had to do forgiveness uh, for what he chose that night. And I had to give forgiveness of all the choices that I felt like I made that night that, you know, could have been different, but also just the guilt of not, not being able to give my kids, the mom that they were supposed to have, even though it wasn't my, Mm -hmm. fault, my choice, it, it it was still there. There was a lot of guilt.
0: Yeah. Is there any ounce of you that's maybe a little bit still bitter that all this had to happen to you? I mean, you talked about acceptance and, you know, forgiveness, but deep down inside, is there still a little bit of that emotion of why did this have to happen? I had the bitterness that comes with one man made this choice and it's changed my life forever. And I'm still dealing with these challenges today.
1: I have, I hope people believe me when I say this, um, I have never been bitter or angry towards him. And I feel like the reason for that is Like just existing took every ounce of my energy and my mental strength that I did not have the time to waste it on that. Like there there just wasn't enough, I guess, to push it to that point. Um, now I got really, really frustrated with things that I couldn't do that a 35 year old should be able to do normally. Like I should be able to get out of bed and get in a wheelchair and go in the kitchen, but it was months before I could do that. And then it was, you know, I forgot to ask somebody to get me a plate or a cereal bowl out of the countertop, you know, once I got into a wheelchair, um, I couldn't put any weight on my legs and I'm like, I should be able to stand up and get it myself, um, or just being able to, you know, go outside. Um, when I did finally get to stand up, it was only for like a couple of weeks that first year, the transition from my kitchen to my back deck was minimal. Like, what is that? A fourth, a half of an inch. I, I couldn't make the transition. I couldn't step down because my balance was so bad. And those were the things that I became angry at, just really frustrated. And I'm like, why is this recovery taking so long? Like I have four kids. My life was so busy before, and now I'm at a standstill. My mind doesn't know what to do with all of this free time. And I just wanted to be able to go back to a normal life. Um, All that being said, I've had some conversations with uh, the gentleman who hit us and they've been very honest, open, vulnerable. I know he didn't set out to hurt us on purpose. I know he didn't. Um, He was a repeat offender. So he obviously knew better. Um, He was an older gentleman in his um, lower sixties. So I know that he knew better, I guess I, I forgive him because one, I know he didn't do it on purpose. He apparently had a habit of making some bad choices and he paid the ultimate sacrifice for his choices. He is no longer here. Now, I know he left me with his consequences um, and I have to to live with them, but I tell people like they they misconstrue what forgiveness means. It doesn't mean that I forgive him in in a way that what he did wasn't wrong. It's not an excuse. Like I don't forget him, forgive him for that. It doesn't give him a free ride. He put me in a position where I had to make a choice of how he's going to handle a situation. And I was like, I just know that I can't deal with all of this in my heart. If I forgive him. That brings me peace. So I almost feel like it was the first time in my life I could be selfish and say, you know what? I'm going to do this for me. This isn't about you at all. I get to have peace in my heart, which means I get to move on and concentrate just on myself and kind of just be free of that. And it just like, I bawled my eyes out the day that I did it. I knew it in my heart. I'm like, everything's fine. He didn't do it on purpose. I know he's sorry. And like that part was just gone. And I was like, I mean, just, I still had so much weight on my shoulders, but it was so much less on my heart.
0: Carrie, take me to present day. How are you doing physically, emotionally, mentally? What is your condition? What are you, maybe, what are you still struggling with? um, and what has helped through this process? So 2022,
1: at this point, I've had 13 surgeries related to my car crash. And at this point, there's really not much more they can do except, uh, you know, wait, wait for technology to advance to the point that it can handle the severity of my situation. So my injuries are not wanting to hold my weight hardly at all anymore. Like In the beginning, I was able to get about 3,000 steps a day in. And I feel like the only reason I did that is I was just so determined to walk. Like it was so exhilarating that I just walked through the pain. At this point in 2022, I am down to about 1,700 steps a day. And it's just that my my injuries are so severe that they don't want to hold my weight. And I just, I don't want to feel that bad all the time anymore. Like it for me now being 46, I want to be able to enjoy more of my day without that nagging pain. Um, So I use my wheelchair about 75% of the time and that does help a lot. Um, I do have so many things wrong with me that that come from this. Um, So I have uh, very severe traumatic arthritis. And uh, I have really bad nerve damage in several parts of my body. So I have neuralgia. I had developed CRPS. Um, the neuralgia almost feels like it, to, to make it more comparable, people who have fibromyalgia, it's that kind of thing. And so between that and the arthritis flare-ups, um, it's crazy. And I live in Missouri that the humidity is sky high all the time, which does not help, you know, <laughs> those feelings. My, my body's a human barometer. Um, so at this point, I'm just kind of hanging out. I, I have to do physical therapy. Um, I, I ha- that's going to be like a lifelong thing. So at this point I had to learn to like Pilates and yoga. So I hated it before, um, my car crashed because I was more of a high impact, very fast paced exerciser or I just did a lot of farm work um, as my exercise. So Pilates and yoga was much slower for me and it just, it took me a long time to learn to like it, but it keeps me walking. Um, and, and that's one of the main points that they told me is you've got to kind of keep in some sort of shape so that you can continue walking as long as you want to. Um, I The next steps for surgeries are gonna be either ankle replacements or I just found out that they are starting to 3D print bones, which blows my mind. Cause I rem- I would always tell my surgeons, "Oh my like, God, if we could just replace the bones in my leg, <laughs> you know, it would be so much better. So they're actually getting to that point right now which is incredible. My physical therapist, um, I-, I was going there so often that one day he said, you know, Carrie, you-, you have a farm. He's like, we can figure out a way that you can do your chores as part of your physical therapy on the farm, and you don't have to come in here all the time. So it it was a lot of trial and error at first, but I was able to to start contributing to the farm again, which made me feel good because I mean, I just wasn't getting to do anything at that point. Um, I got to be outside, I got to be in my environment with my animals. So what started out, farming became my physical therapy. And before I knew it, farm, was my mental therapy like it helped my mental health to a point where i did not realize how much i needed to contribute and have accomplishment mm-hmm. in my life like i needed some kind of some kind of purpose in there so those three things i didn't realize how much i needed them and mm-hmm. those things even though in the beginning like trying to figure out what i could do and what order and how it was actually really painful to figure that out it got me to a point where today i do the same thing in the same order every day because i know that it uses the least amount of energy and it uses the least amount of steps but what it does is it fills me up inside and that feeling then projects me on to say, okay, I can keep doing this. Um, I'm still getting fulfillment in my life. I'm getting satisfaction. I'm getting to contribute, you know, to my family by helping on the farm. And one, I just love it. So all of that combined together, what started out as physical therapy grew into much, much more.
0: I want to transition to the issue itself of reckless and impaired driving, specifically in rural areas. Some background from the research that I did is U.S. traffic deaths sharply increased in 2021. Nearly 43,000 people died, according to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. This is the highest number of fatalities since 2005, and I found out that specifically police reported alcohol involvement crashes were up 5%. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration says one reason that these numbers are up is that there were less crowded roadways during the COVID-related shutdowns which then caused more reckless driving, such as not wearing seatbelts, speeding, and distracted driving. Now, 2022, we're back on the roads, and it still seems we are moving backwards in our goal to decrease traffic deaths. And this isn't a new problem for our country, but I feel like it's not talked about as much anymore. You used to see the billboards and the ads, "Buzz driving is drunk driving, click it or ticket. So, my question is, have we become complacent and reckless and distracted driving? and Carrie, I want to know what your viewpoint of this issue as a rural American and as someone who is involved directly in a junk driving related crash i I feel like
1: growing up in a rural area like this, it was normal for anyone to drive impaired um it's I, you know, alcohol is such an accepted, it is a drug, but it's so accepted that um, when people overindulge, I know in in our area, and, and I'm sure it's the same way in the cities, they're like, it's just a five minute drive home, or, you know, it's just 15 miles. And I have heard that you know, somebody say that to me before, but I know that that's how a lot of us think is, it's just down the road. Well, I I work a lot with our state safety coalition, um, advocating for uh, all like distracted driving, but also, you know, seatbelt safety and stuff. And the statistics say that the majority of the car accidents that happen because of that is like within the last mile or two of home. Because you, you you're like, "I'm almost there, your body starts to relax, and either that's when you fall asleep, or that's when you cross the line and, and stuff like that. So that's really brought up a, a lot of awareness um, to my attention. Now, obviously growing up, we knew it was wrong, but it was just more of an accepted thing. And as an adult, it, it was almost the same way that, you know the, the, the kids transition into adulthood, well, it's accepted in your childhood to watch adults do this. So then, as an adult yourself, most people don't think about changing that behavior. So it's it happens every day. You wouldn't have any idea how many people you pass on the road every day that are impaired that you you make it past. And with with us in the rural area, like you said, not having access. Um, to at first, you know, taxis and then, you know, Uber and Lyft, it started to become a little bit more prevalent. Um, I think in the rural area though, like there's so many farmers that farmers are very prideful, like any, or anybody in the agriculture world, it's, you don't ever ask for help because you can always do it yourself. Or it's, I'm ashamed that I have to call someone to give me a ride. I don't want anybody to know that I got this blitzed, you know, that I need to call for somebody and they're thinking I can just make it home. And 90% of the time you do make it home, but then there's that one time you don't. And I've heard a lot of people say, well, if it happens to me, it's just, you know, I'll hurt myself. Like you're, As humans, we're just, we always think so selfishly. If I hurt myself in my own distracted driving, it's okay. It's just me. But they're not thinking of what happens in my situation where we were doing everything right that night. We all three had our seatbelts on. None of us were on the phone. Um, I wasn't driving over the speed limit. We were very engaged and it happened anyway. And that's the part that I want to get across is that it's not just you that you have to think about, you know, when you're distracted driving, it's who else are you going to meet? Because I want you to put a face and a personality with that vehicle that you're going to hit or that pedestrian, you know, that's walking alongside the road or across the road. That person's part of a family. They're loved. And you have either just... Wiped them from the face of this earth, or you have put them in a situation like mine, where everything that happened the night of that distracted driving is going to follow them until their death, and that that's that's a lot to have on your shoulders.
0: Mm-hmm. It's heavy, but it needs to be said. It needs to be shared, um, and I think you're correct in saying you know we just think about how it will affect ourselves. And it, it never just does affect ourselves. You know, it affects at least somebody. Yeah, and that ripple effect,
1: it just keeps going out.
0: Right. And I, I think about, you know, being younger, you might hear of news reports about a drunk driver um, causing an accident or, you know, maybe it was just a single vehicle accident I I remember hearing those stories quite a lot. I don't hear those stories in the media anymore, and I'm not placing any blame on why we don't hear them. But my question and something that I'm trying to work through myself is, have we become numb to it? Because is it more of an accepted addiction? And, you know, we just, you know, it is what it is kind of thing. And I, I can't come to that conclusion. And there's a lot of things happening in our world right now, you know, The pandemic, um, crime, there's just a lot going on. So has the drunk driving just been replaced by another issue? I don't know. But I think, it. like I said earlier, it's now trending upwards again. Why? I don't know. But I think this message comes, it's always an important message, but I think at this time, it's more relevant than ever. Yeah, I I believe so. And as I dove
1: into um, the awareness side of this, it's, I did not realize how prevalent driving impaired or distracted is because it's become, I feel like, like you said, it's become the norm to know that people drive impaired and to just see somebody do it and with, with alcohol. And then I don't, the rural areas have become inundated with opioids. Like we, we have all of this addiction now um, with opioids and um, heroin. And I'm just thinking all this terrible stuff and then add texting and driving on top of it. Like, I feel like that can be included in there too, because people are like, mm-hmm. well, you have to drive all the time. And until... One of those situations happened to you, you realize how real it actually is because it hurts you. Like it physically hurts you when someone, you know, even if you don't know them well, but if you live in a small community, like I do, when one of those people has lost their life to something just so meaningless like Mm -hmm. that, then that's the part when it hits you and you sit back and you're like what the heck are we doing? Mm -hmm. We know this is normal, but like, when you think back, I don't, I don't know how old you are, but when I was a kid, we would ride in the bed of the truck. And sometimes we would ride in lawn chairs. Sometimes we would just ride in the back of the truck down the highway. Who in their right mind does that? But at that point in time, it was the normal. But nowadays, because we finally realized and learned better, we're like, who in the heck goes 60 miles an hour down the road with their children in the back of their truck in the bed? You know, that just seems like insanity. So I feel like the same thing needs to be added towards all this distracted driving. Gosh, whenever I, t- I say I talk to kids, but honestly, this goes for a lot of adults as well. Like when you're in that moment and you're thinking, boy, I probably shouldn't drive home. I need to call for a ride or somebody comes up to you and says, you know, hey, I I need to take your keys. Instead of getting angry and saying, no, um, I'm not going to call anybody or no, you can't take my keys. I want you to realize that they're just being your friend or they're being a good person if they don't know you. And they're trying to save not only your life, but someone else's life. So in that moment, you're making a choice of whether you could possibly hurt someone or whether you can just avoid that entire Situation. Like, dig down, find the courage wherever you need to within yourself to make that right choice and say, you know what? If I have to sleep in my truck on the side of a gravel road tonight, that's what I'm going to do until I can wake up and I can drive
0: sober. This isn't where we end with Carrie and her story. When I was researching, I discovered another issue she has had to face during her recovery. Carrie shared in a former interview about her dependency on narcotics. This problem is a real challenge for our society right now, especially in rural America. She reveals the hardship and challenges of being dependent. I
1: say my body was addicted. My, my doctors say you need to say your body was dependent because addiction means you're like, you're mentally addicted. So I've had to switch that in my mind to try to start saying that, um, it's really crazy because working in the healthcare field, I saw all of these patients come in that were good people and something bad happened to them that caused them pain. And all of a sudden they found themselves addicted to their pain medicine and, whenever I would see these people, God, I felt so bad for them. And I would see them coming in and they're way too early, you know, to have their refill whenever I was working in a, um, in a doctor's office. And I thought they'd become a person that they didn't know. And I was like, I, I knew when this happened to me that I needed to be proactive about that. Like I needed to to keep in my mind, Carrie, as soon as you can get off these pain pills, you need to get off of them. The problem was that my pain was so bad that my surgeon told my husband, Carrie's still gonna be in an incredible amount of pain. We're just gonna hope that she doesn't remember most of it. And that really like hit him. He's like, holy cow, this is, this is still gonna be bad when we get home. So I would take OxyContin and then two hours later, I would take Percocet. Two hours later, OxyContin, two hours later, Percocet. just to to take the edge off. And that's what was prescribed to me. So I never got to decrease that because I was continuing to have surgery. So I was disrupting those injuries again. And it would just, everything was just always on. Like the pain was always on. And about nine weeks after my car crash, I remember thinking, I am so sick to my stomach, like it having taking that amount of medicines, because I was on a plethora of other medicines as well, you know, like anti-inflammatories and um, God, I can't remember. I don't Like I said, my husband made an Excel sheet. There were so many. So it was basically eating the lining of my stomach. Mm-hmm. And I was so messed up that if somebody wasn't with me, I wouldn't remember if I ate or not. And then not being able to move from my hospital bed, like, like everything in me atrophied. So I had no muscle, um, God, who knows what I weighed, probably 110 pounds. And I was five, eight at that point. Um, so, so, so that medicine was just my, I was dry heating every day, but I needed the medicine to take the pain away, or at least lessen it. I should say. And then because I was on that amount of medicine and because I was laying in a hospital bed, I had severe vertigo. So it was, you know, I would turn my head to the right and the whole entire room would spin. And I thought, okay, I know what this is too. And um, it was that combination. And it, it got to the point where those two things were almost competing with the pain of my bones, my body. And so I called my surgeon. I'm like, I cannot do this anymore. I'm like, it is, I am so sick to my stomach. And just the vertigo is, it's unbelievable. It's like my head is hitting all four walls when I even try to raise it. And he said, well, I can call you in Tylenol number three. I'm telling you right now, it's not going to take your pain away, but it's probably the lesser of, of one that I can give you. And maybe just alternate that with you know, one of the other narcotics. And so I was like, I don't want to take any of those two. I don't want to take Oxycontin or Percocet anymore. So I just took the Tylenol number three and holy cow, one, it wasn't near enough to get rid of my pain. And once you get that amount of pain, it takes like three times as long to try to get ahead of it. But two days in after I stopped Oxycontin and Percocet, I started having these jitters, these shakes. And I thought, that's weird. Maybe I need to eat more. And then I started sweating, like having the sweats. And then I noticed, man, I'm really irritable. Like I want to snap at everything. And you have to realize at this point, I am in a narcotic fog. Like there's not a lot of common sense that comes with that. But like a knife through that that fog, it hit me. And I remember I said, Oh my God, nine weeks in and my body is dependent on these narcotics. And I, in my mind, I was being proactive, keeping an eye on it, but I had no idea until I stopped them that my body wanted them so bad. So even though I, I still take a lower narcotic now it's Norco. Um, I punish myself more than I need to with pain because I'm scared of going back to that point. So I only get, I think 120 Norco a year, which is unheard of with people in my situation. The reason that I do that is because if I have a really bad flare up, if I take one of those pain pills every night before bed for three nights in a row, If I don't take it the fourth night, I have withdrawals. Even all these years later, and only taking that amount. So it it's it stays in your body. And I on that fourth night, I get the jitters, I get restless leg syndrome, like my body doesn't want to stay still, like I'm just shaking. I know without a doubt, if I just went and took a pill, that all of that would go away. And that is where people then get mentally addicted. Who weren't before. And it is so hard (laughs) because some days I'm like, God, I just want to go to bed. I just want to get through this. But I know the next night it's going to be the exact same thing again. So you have to suffer through those one or two days until all that gets out of your body to then where you can feel good again. And that scares me so much that I never, ever want to be in that position again. And so that's why I do everything that I possibly can to relieve my pain before I take that pain pill. And I have to be pretty bad before I take that pain pill. Um, But then, you know, it it makes me suffer in
0: the end, but I feel like I'm fighting two battles here. It's amazing how you still feel that. It's still, that pain is still affecting you. And it feels like an endless battle. It
1: is endless. And it will be like, it'll be till till the day that I die, that I am going to have to battle that.
0: You posted a video on Facebook sharing more about pain, talking about the stigma of opioids and the addiction and how people will just go to their local ER hoping to get a fix of it. And you certainly do not fit in that boat. You do need relief from the pain. Tell me about that stigma of, um, and what you said in that video of, how hard it is for you to get relief from pain with this opioid crisis that we are having. Yeah, it's
1: so there's plenty of people out there like me who who need to go to the ER every once in a while um, where you can't get control of the pain yourself. And I have called my doctor, I think, three times in the 11 years and saying, you know, I, I don't know what to do. I feel like I need to go to the ER and, um, you know, get, get a pain drip because I can't, I can't get this to go away on my own. And they've always openly said, Carrie, if it's that bad, definitely go to the ER if you want to, but I'm just going to tell you this, you're going to have to fight because they're not going to believe you from the get go. So many years ago, they didn't have the, the the pharmacies connected like they do now. So you couldn't see where one person would get medicine from an, one ER and, and you know, so they couldn't track that. And, and the same thing with pharmacies. So they didn't know when there was a drug abuser. Now I think they're connected. So there is more control on that, but there's still that stigma of, I'm gonna go in until they see my scars, they're not going to believe that I am partially disabled, that I am in the amount of pain that I am. Um, My pain scale is completely different than anyone else's because they would say when they rate your pain, the way that I'm rating it is the night of my car crash, when I had an open, open fractures, my bones were crushed, my body was pinned. That is my (laughs) 10, you know? So that 10 is not comparable to anybody else's. So when I say I'm probably at a six, they're like, that's not even close. And I'm like, okay, on a normal people's pain scale would probably be nine, but here's what mine is. But because those physicians and those nurses have been so abused, immediately they have to, I guess, go through the steps to try to figure out whether you're a drug abuser or not, and they're not going to believe you initially. And my surgeons told me that. They said, Carrie, the the, the battle is that they see so many of these every night through the ER that you're just another person in line and they, they have to not just believe you off the get-go like it used to be because there's so many people seeking. They just want that fix. And for people like me, it's, it's kept me from going to the ER. I've never gone ever, even though I felt like I've needed to, um, because there's just that stigma and I don't want to have, I just don't want to deal with it. I don't want to battle with that. Um, now our our communities are, are pretty small. If I went to our local hospital, I could probably, I, I know enough nurses, I guess, that I could call and say, hey, <laughs> can you call in and, and let them know, like as a, a person who knows me, what's going on with me, so they do believe me. Um, But then again, too, I would never want to have to put that person in a position. But if I was desperate enough, I would do that. Um, I just have a freaking high threshold, (laughs) so high, that I just, I've never actually said, okay,
0: husband, take me to the ER. Thank you so much for sharing your vulnerability, your story, points of pain you've had, the challenges, the frustration. I can hear it in your story. And with saying all this, why do you choose after almost 12 years to continue to share the story of yourself and bring awareness to this situation?
1: One is selfish. Um, Every time that I do it, I feel like I purge a little bit of that pain that's in my heart. And it allows me to heal in ways that I, I don't know how I would heal otherwise. Um, I think just getting it out there and being vulnerable and saying, God, you guys, this this experience hurt in ways that you you cannot imagine until you're in a situation like that. And the second thing is I look at my kids and how this experience has changed them. And they're now the parents of their groups a lot of times. Um, I, I want them to be confident in their choices to do the right thing and, and have that courage. So I want other, I I want everyone to have that. Um, There's basically, there's two different sides to my story. There's, there's the choices part in, Hey, let's, let's do the right thing from the get go. And then there's the part that if you ever go through a challenge in your life, that is so severe that I promise you if you do make the right choice and how to handle it, meaning, you know, you have the right attitude, you use the right support system that you can overcome it. And it may not turn out exactly like you had wished, um, you know, just like in my case, but you'll make it through it. So those those are the two things that really keep me going out and sharing is that, one, let's do the, the right thing from the start, just have that courage, to dig down and, and be confident in yourself, regardless of what's going on around you and saying, no, this is the right thing. This is what we're going to do. And then there's the other part that life's going to smack you hard. Sometimes it's going to smack you real hard. I promise you can get through it. You just got to do the right thing and make the right choices and do the right steps.
0: With the conclusion of this interview i want you to think about carrie's story and reflect on her experience as a survivor and everything she had to endure because of one individual's choice to drive impaired are we becoming complacent in our driving behaviors are we going backwards in our goal to diminish drunk driving are we accepting the norm that more people will either die or like Carrie, faced lifelong struggles and challenges. Truthfully, this is a story that has made me think again about my own driving habits. Special thank you to Carrie Patel for sharing her story today. Thanks for listening to The Rule Reveal. Be sure to subscribe on Substack and all major podcasting platforms. I'm Kelsey Litchfield. This has been a production of Colleen Callahan Consultancy and C3 Studios. Special thanks to our sponsor today, Rooster, an innovative agriculture and rural lifestyle marketing company that solves client problems before they become problems. Learn more at roosterstrategy.com.